Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. <laughs> Which is, what course, accent was that? Um, oh, have you seen Narcos? I was doing my impression. Uh, oh, right, okay. That no, I haven't. Plomo. Okay, um, well, my impression I'm sure Pablo Escobar. So that's <laughs> Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. Which is, of course, Spanish for Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> um, in this bonus Christmas series of We Have Ways of Making You Talk, James Holland and I are reading passages from some of our favourite wartime books. James, what you got for us today for Christmas Eve? What's in your stocking? Well, it is The Straits of Messina by Johannes Steinhoff, or Mackie Steinhoff as he was known. Um, and actually it's been republished quite recently as uh, Messerschmitts over Sicily. Right. But I kind of prefer the original title, personally. I prefer the original title. That's a bit on the nose, isn't it? Um, yeah. That'd be like calling First Light Spitfires over Kent. Very early, we were at readiness. Cuddle Abbon's fighter wing, the third wing in my group, had flown over from Sardinia the previous evening, their arrival coinciding with that of Myers and one wing of the Ace of Spades group. Trapani Airfield was now crowded with Messerschmitt fighters, as if for an air display, and we were very well aware of the disastrous consequences a surprise attack might bring. We sat in front of the hut under the olive trees, no more than a few paces from our aircraft and the slit trenches, indulging in the sort of inconsequential small talk that is wholly unconnected with what one is really thinking. But all the time, we kept our ears cocked in case the morning breeze should drown the threatening rumbles of engines. The night had brought no relief from the heat, and the day was going to be oppressively hot. "'Well, my lads, the General's going to show us how to fight an air battle,' Freiburg said, "'and it'll be just like a parade for a party rally.' Ever seen a flying fortress close to Cuddle? No, replied Cuddle Abbon. I'll be careful not to. They don't seem to like it very much. But the general made it all so beautifully plain yesterday evening, said Freiburg in schoolmasterly tones. Are you still in any doubt about how we should attack them head on, and from below and astern, or about the fantastic things the blue-eyed boys in Reich Air Defence are doing? He forgot to ask how many of us were non-swimmers. You'll drown even if you can't swim. If you have to bail out and you're outside of land... Nobody's going to pick you up. Abbott knew something of the sea. He had served as a rating in destroyers before transferring to the aviation branch, where he had risen rapidly. Like Godert, he was one of the mainstays of the group. Freiburg swatted an invisible fly of his hand. It's something you just don't think about, he said. Funny thing, said Abbott. As soon as I cross the coast and head out to sea, my engine always seems to sound twice as noisy. Listening to these young captains, it was difficult to imagine that they held important military commands. But such was the professional style, 
a style that evolved out of this particular war. The commander of a fighter unit was, without exception, the first to engage the enemy, but when the fighting had begun and no one could be leader, he was simply a pilot, dependent on his own resources in single combat with another pilot, one who swore in English. Myers was young, bright and not unlike Freiburg in his studied nonchalance. Both belonged to a certain type of flyer, the type produced by the successful years of the war in the air. A gentle morning breeze stirred the olive grove, but it brought no coolness, for the atmosphere was damp and sticky. It was weather typical of the Sicilian summer. I had lost count of the number of times I had debated with myself how I should lead and mount the attack. My experience was somewhat meagre. Over the Channel during the Battle of Britain, I had commanded nothing larger than a squadron. I was aware of the problems when manoeuvring with a large formation of fighters, but I myself had never led on such occasions. Either the leader flies too fast so that the formation opens out astern, concertina fashion, to the accompaniment of repeated calls over the RT from somebody at the back for less speed, or else he flies too slowly, which means that during turns, and these must in any case be executed as gentle skid turns, the inside man is forced to lose height through lack of flying speed. Shall I, I wondered, succeed in bringing my formation intact to the point of interception with the heavies? Shall I, perhaps, have to attack head-on? And then, of course, the usual thoughts, the ones you could never suppress, kept cropping up. The murderous return fire from the fortresses, the parachute descent, the rubber dinghy. Sir, I heard someone say, Colonel Larson, the Inspector South, has just landed. The last time I had seen Larson had been in southern Russia. My wing had been attached to his group when the attack against Stalingrad began in the summer of 1942. We had been friends ever since. As he got out of his car, he shouted to me, I want to be here for your first big defensive battle. The deck chairs were set out in a semicircle under the olive trees beside the hut. There we sat down and told each other what had happened. There we sat down and told each other what had happened to us since our last meeting. Fighter pilots at readiness, deprived of these items of furniture, would be altogether inconceivable. How many hours had I spent in a deck chair since the outbreak of war? It had started in the West during the Sitzkrieg against France when we would occasionally chase away a reconnaissance aircraft, a harmless occupation compared with what we were doing now. But since that time we had been in an almost constant state of readiness, either cockpit readiness, sitting in our aircraft, or else in deck chairs close by our machines. A day seems very long when it is spent in waiting, with nothing to occupy one's imagination, except the war in the air. Today, for the first time since the Battle of Britain, I was conscious of the same oppressive atmosphere that used to afflict us then. In August and September 1940, we were normally at readiness by first light. After breakfast, a meal that stuck in most of their throats, the group's pilots assembled in front of the operations room, a Nissan hut on the edge of the airfield. Pale and short of sleep, and all of them young, almost boys, they leaned silently against the wall of the hut or propped their elbows on the bonnet of a Kubelwagen. Occasionally, someone made a brief remark about the weather or the next operation. Cigarettes glowed in the grey half-light. Our trousers of heavy cloth, liberally supplied with pockets, were known as channel pants. Over our leather waistcoats we wore yellow life jackets, to which were secured the various items of equipment designed to give us a better chance of survival in the event of our having to abandon our aircraft. A dye pouch to stain the water round us bright yellow, a clumsy very pistol, cartridges, a signalling lamp and emergency rations. And we each had a yellow scarf which was worn, as often as not, 
with some panache and yet was indispensable when one was in the sea and wanted to attract the attention either of one of our own air-sea rescue airplanes or of a British high-speed motor launch, with captivity the inevitable condition of rescue. Then came the decisions about the operation, about timings, about the order in which the squadrons were to take off, about the formation they were to adopt. If weather conditions above the British Isles were such as to cause a postponement of our departure, we were subjected to the ordeal of waiting in deck chairs in the gloom of the Nissan huts beside the squadron dispersal point. Conversation very soon died away altogether, or became nothing more than an indistinct murmur. Most of the pilots would doze, their eyes closed, or else would pretend to sleep while conjuring up an endless sequence of horrors. The ringing of the field telephone acted on us like an electric shock. Now at last, this was it! But if the call were nothing more than a weather report, or a routine inquiry about the state of the aircraft, many would curse the telephone as an instrument of torture, prolonging as it did the agony of passive waiting, perhaps for minutes, perhaps for hours. And they were settled back again into their comfortable deck chairs where, physically at least, they were able to relax. It was to these same deck chairs in the shade of the olive trees that I had led Larson. Veterans with a colourful past, they were the most important articles in our baggage. Their cheerful striped covers from the days of peace had long since disintegrated and been removed by the riggers. Now their wooden frames, shiny from contact with human skin, were clad in sturdy grey tent canvas. "'Today's your big chance,' Larson said. "'You must keep close together when you attack and dismiss from your mind any thought of mixing it with the Spitfires. The fortresses are like a fleet of battleships and you can only get in among them if you break through their defensive fire in the compact phalanx.' Oh, for God's sake, Franzel, I interjected. Spare me that awful patter. For days now, advice and instructions have been raining down on our heads from on high. The general keeps dangling the gallant pilots of the Reich air defence as a shining example before our eyes. He's also let us know that the Reich's marshal takes an exceedingly dim view of the fighter pilots down here in the south. In fact, our sense of inferiority has got to such a stage that the boys' only reaction is one of biting sarcasm, and they simply won't listen any more. You must remember that they're no longer a bunch of young heroes who risk their lives without a second thought. But equally, they don't want for guts. A handful of them survived the Battle of Britain, and since then they've been on operations non-stop, and they've been doing it bravely and well. Every so often someone's number comes up, and a younger man takes his place. But the new ones haven't much hope of coming through. They've not been thoroughly trained, and few of them survived the critical first phase. You people don't know this horrible theatre yet. It's mostly water, and in the long run it gets us all. We're exposed to the enemy and we've no protection. They'll wear us down by keeping us grounded and destroying our parks and workshops. You don't, by any chance, do you, believe in the Teutonic superhero who, after a bombing raid, rises from his slit trench, shakes the dust from his feet and ascends on steely pinions into the icy heavens, there to wreak havoc among the flying fortresses. At this point, I realised I was falling into Freiburg's irreverent manner of speech. Larsen seemed to have got much the same impression, for he gave me a long, penetrating look. He remained silent for a time, before saying suddenly, as though all at once the scales had fallen from his eyes, "'Yes, but how's it all going to end here? That's what I wanted to ask you!' Another silence. Something seemed to be holding him back before he went on. "'Before leaving Rome today, I was at the C&C South Situation Conference. Last night the British bombed Wuppertal. Over 10,000 incendiaries started continuous fires between two and three miles long. Dusseldorf, Neuss, Mönchengladbach and Solingen were attacked in the same time. 
And do you believe we can stop this systematic destruction of everything at home? The General has been asking vainly and all too long for more fighter groups, but they just can't be produced from thin air. Ever since it's been appreciated that these four-engine bombers are in fact real fortresses that only can be taken on individually, some ludicrous proposals have been put forward about how to deal with them. You'll soon be getting some rockets from the army. They call them Nabelwerfer. They're large-caliber missiles, and one of them is mounted beneath each wing. They're fired so they can explode in the middle of the bombers and cause them to scatter. Once flushed from their defensive hedgehog, the fortresses can be destroyed without difficulty. Others are trying to drop large bombs above the formations in such a way that they explode at the same height as the enemy. Here the intention is to destroy the whole formation in one go, or at least to make it disperse, but it's extraordinarily difficult to position yourself correctly above the fortresses. Your altitude must be calculated with absolute accuracy, since the bomb has a time fuse and is quite ineffective if it goes off at the wrong height. And no doubt the escorting fighters have long been aware of this trick, and make sure the air above the bomber stream is clear. Exactly. Another thing is winged bombs suspended from steel wires and trailed through the air by fighters. They're meant to cut the fortresses to pieces, or at any rate to spread alarm and despondency. One can never say for sure beforehand whether these inventions are going to be any good or whether they're just pieces of nonsense. But a head-on attack, a closely knit assault carried out on a collision course, that's what spreads panic among the bomber crews and reduces the fight to single engagements. Today it's the classical opening to the battle provided the fighters let you get there, and provided you manage to lead your formation, well closed up, to where you have enough space and height to come down on them, from in front and above. Often there are only seconds between the moment of your dive and a collision, and of course in this crazy manoeuvre you're closing at the sum of both your speeds. The heavy silhouettes loom up in your windscreen, as though in a speeded-up cinefilm. You've only a few seconds in which to fire your cannons. You have to aim at the fortress's glass cockpit, and all your chaps must fire like mad at the same time. Then you pull up at once, hard, or alternatively you dive away underneath. After that, you're on your own, for your formation will be all over the place. Then is the time to attack single-handed, and knock off the lame ducks who've turned tail with an engine stopped, or a white trail of petrol streaming out behind them. But it'll all be different here, Franzel. This island's like an aircraft carrier without engines. They can approach it from any direction, and fly home at any height they want. The only places where we have any flak are around the ports and the airfields and on the other side of the Straits of Messina. Well, that's so. It's a short flight, and the whole island's within range of fighters on Pantelleria Malta. Since they took Pantelleria, their fighters have been arriving at breakfast time. Fine show that surrender was. Makes you wonder what fate's in store for Sicily. I was there in Pantelleria in April, and after I'd landed at Magana, their only airfield, the Commandant pretty well tied himself in knots in an effort to convey the impression of stubborn determination. We walked around the rock dugouts and the emplacements and drank coffee together in his wooded panelled room while he spoke with splendid conviction about the impregnability of the island. He was a willowy sort of chap with a sallow complexion and dark rings under his eyes. I still remember vividly the nervous movements of his hands and the way I kept glancing at the nicotine stains on his fingers. He gave me a terrific buttering up, holding forth about courage, bravery and comradeship in arms. While I was climbing into my aircraft, he saluted, standing stiff as a bronze statue between two carabinieri with red plumes in their helmets. And then he goes and surrenders the island without firing a single shot. Larson listened quietly to my tirade and then came straight back to the matter in hand. It's going to be a tough time for you all. The General's a realist. You may be certain that he's the last one to think you're not giving your best. We were silenced by three rounds of anti-aircraft fire. From the east, over Mount Arici, came the steadily increasing roar of engines. 
even as we raced for the slit trenches, we could hear the whistle of bombs, a vile noise. I dived into the trench head first, landing on the back of an airman who had got there sooner than I. For a few seconds all was quite still. Then the carpet of bombs came thundering towards us with appalling crashes and explosions. The formations were releasing their bomb loads, one after the other, so that the carpet kept rumbling closer, unrolling to the rhythm of successive bursts. In the trenches everyone held his breath, hoping that the next stick would fall on the far side. Close by me I saw Larson. The fine dust had coated his forehead as though with a layer of white face powder, through which the sweat had trickled, forming dark runnels. We pressed our faces to the ground as an explosion close by nearly burst our eardrums and sent a cloud of dust sweeping through the trench. Presently the sound of engines died away, and for a moment or two there was complete silence, a silence that was broken almost at once by the cries of the wounded, shouted commands and calls for stretcher-bearers. "'Bloody nice for the General,' Larson cursed, sitting up there on his mountain among his telephones and wireless sets watching us go through the mincer. "'There's absolutely no comparison, Franzel. The second wave may be along at any moment, so we might as well stay quietly where we are in this delightful spot,' and continue our discussion about offensive tactics with special reference to the flying fortresses. The only answer elicited by my sarcastic remarks was a good-natured, Shut up! But now the dust had settled. Looking up, I saw the deep blue of the sky, and the branches of the olive trees with leaves the colour of verdigris. From somewhere came the pop-pop of ammunition going off in a burning aircraft. Come on, let's get the general on the telephone, and ask him if he has any more surprises like this in store for us. Yes, said Larson. Let's do that. Well, this second uh, reading comes from a little bit later on, also on the 25th of June, 1943, and it's when they do finally come into contact with the Flying Fortresses. The airfield has been dusted down, they've taken off, um, and as as a group, they head off to take on the bombers. <clears throat> and this is the moment where they finally come into contact with them. The formation was already widely strung out, at 10,000 feet, the haze was exceptionally dense, and when I looked back, I could see only Freiburg's unit against the sky. The others had been swallowed up in the murk. A dis is calling. Close up! Close up! Throttle back a bit, please. Throttle back a bit, please. We're using too much fuel. Got to turn back. Already the RT was coming to life, as though the pilots felt less oppressed by their isolation when they were able to communicate with each other and hear the sound of their own voices. For the most part, the tone was highly phlegmatic, having been adopted, of course, to disguise the state of extreme tension engendered in each of them as they waited for the first report of a sighting, the cry of, Look out! or, They are, there they are! The cry of, Look out! or, There they are! The crackle of the RT, each time it came to life before the actual sound of the words, made everybody jump. Pantechnicons, right beneath us! Right beneath us! Lots of them! Heading west! It was Zola's voice. His accent was unmistakable. So loud has been his shout that he must have intended to alert every single man by sheer volume of noise. Electrified, I looked down at the grey sea below, and then I saw them too. The surface had suddenly become speckled with a curious pattern of light brown smudges. With their upper parts painted desert yellow, the flying fortresses stood out clearly against a silver grey of sea. They were flying very low and fast, racing over the waves, almost wingtip to wingtip. I could only see them in the angle between my main plane and engine cowling. Elsewhere they were invisible in the haze. They were making for North Africa on a reciprocal course to our own. There were intervals between the individual squadrons of nine or perhaps twelve aircraft. 
Beneath the formation, the wave crests of the Mediterranean were like a patterned carpet slowly unrolling. I knew there was no time for a carefully calculated tactical manoeuvre. I was compelled to start the attack from this unfavourable position, without a moment's delay, whether my formation followed me or not. Small hope now of giving any orders over the radio. As I dived in the direction of the bomber's left flank, the screech and uproar in the earphones had reached such proportions that I could only catch a few random words or phrases. Pantechnicons, look, very low, crowds of them. Got to turn back. Stay there, stay there. Six thousand feet. The Messerschmitt 109 speed had built up tremendously. The more height I lost, the faster the bombers seemed to be moving. Straden, Bachmann and Bernhard followed me down, keeping correct station. Three thousand feet. Suddenly a gap appeared between the enemy squadrons. I had to get low enough to be at the same height as the bombers when I met them. The rolling waves were now a feet below me, and the extended line of huge aircraft was approaching at an incredible speed. I fixed my gaze through the front windscreen, keeping the illuminated reflector sight on the aircraft at the centre of the formation. You have to aim at the fortress's glass cockpit. Exactly when I opened fire, I do not know. The moment to do so must have been conveyed automatically to my thumb on the stick. In that last brief phase of the attack, it was all suddenly like the sequence of a familiar exercise. I pulled my ME up to the same height as the bombers, as though I had done it a hundred times before. My task was to spray the gleaming cockpit with a hail of shot. In a curving trajectory, the incendiary tracer streaked away from the machine guns towards the giant bomber, crossing the blue smears of smoke tracer. The luminous crosswires of my sights shook to the pop-pop-pop of the cannons. The flashing panels of glass were plainly visible, and then I had to wrench the machine upwards, the G-force pressing me hard down into my seat. The impetus from this burst of speed took me high above the bombers. My mouth felt as though it had dried up, and my saliva tasted bitter. The cockpit was full of the smell of cordite. As I banked, I noticed that I was on my own. My HQ flight had broken. Looking back, I saw a column of white water rising as high as a house at the point where the bomber had crashed. Mixed with orders and encouraging shouts was the hysterical shrieking of incipient panic. Course for Trapani, please! I'm on my own! My fuel's running out! Trapani, a fix, please! Freiburg and his wing must have followed me down into the attack on the bombers, for I could hear shouted scraps from the battle. Get closer, get closer! Release your drop tank! Flatten out! But at the same time, increasing numbers were reporting a shortage of petrol and the need to withdraw. My own fuel gauge indicated a reserve equivalent to 20 minutes flying time. I climbed through the haze to 10,000 feet, and now, quite alone, turned onto the compass course which I estimated must lead me back to the island. Already I was beginning to assess just what had happened. It was a disaster that we should have come upon the bombers at the last minute. And there were no instructions about the tactics to adopt when attacking low-flying Boeings. Nothing, absolutely nothing, had favoured our attack. The bombers had swallowed up in the haze. All at once I relapsed into the state of anxiety that assails those who fly solo over the sea. I listened uneasily to the sound of the engine, calculated course and flying time yet again, and stared at the greyish-blue wall ahead, out of which Mount Arici must soon appear. This third extract comes from the 10th of July 1943, uh, which is actually D-Day for Operation Husky, the Allied invasion of Sicily. So the invasion is underway, 
um, and they've moved to um, a sort of temporary airfield, a scratch airfield away from Trapani um, in the middle of the island um, and um, are having a torrid time, uh, to say the very least. I wondered why today this parched yellow strip with dark oak trees sparsely covering the slopes on either side should seem so small. Yesterday the area had looked much larger when I had landed there in the stalk and taxied over the rock-hard ground. Pacing it out, I had had to make my way through a knee-high scrub of grass and thistles, which had crackled as it broke and crumbled away under my feet. The length of the runway had seemed to me adequate provided that one approached the marker at minimum speed and touched down beside it. With the wing behind me, I wanted to make a good landing so as to give them confidence. Then I would have to taxi quickly to one side to make way for Backman and Helbig, who were not far behind me and were likewise banking prior to straightening out for the final approach. There was no wind, nor at this early hour of the morning was there any turbulence. Just before I set the aircraft down, men in khaki came into view outside the farmhouse door, and as the wheels touched the ground, I saw airmen with very pistols close to the landing marker. Their orders were to fire a red signal immediately if anything should seem to be amiss with a landing. Straden had chosen experienced men for this duty. Breasting the slope, the aircraft came quickly to a halt, and then I realised that the runway was too short for a pilot to take off again if, having misjudged his landing, he took more than a split second to decide to go round and make a second attempt. My mechanics were signalling to me under the shade of the trees. I switched off the engine, undid my harness, and sat down on the edge of the cockpit. From there I had a good view of the activities on the airfield and could give landing instructions over the RT to Freiburg's wing. The things we did with our Messerschmitts on this tiny patch of earth we called an advanced landing ground bordered on the realm of aerobatics. With the engine in high revolutions, just sufficient speed had to be maintained to control the aircraft. Immediately before the marker, the throttle would be wrenched back and the heavy machine would alight in a cloud of dust on the rock-hard but far from even ground. It was a bold manoeuvre to which our years of wandering had, however, accustomed us. For me, the only difference lay in the fact that, as a squadron commander, I had still been able to curse the choice of this or that wretched strip of land from which we had been expected to operate. Now, however, the choice had been mine, and that was quite a different affair. But it all seemed to be proceeding satisfactorily. Everyone knew the landing sequence. The intervals between aircraft were adapted to the conditions, and the younger pilots had been repeatedly briefed about the hazards of landing in these circumstances. One of the latter took off again immediately after touching down because he had misjudged his speed. Quite correct. The red flares sank slowly to the ground and went out. There were the usual dust clouds, the crescendo and diminuendo of engines, the taxiing aircraft, the refuelers moving up, the bustling mechanics, a kaleidoscope of war invading this peaceful valley with explosive force. To us it was all quite commonplace, even though the hair-raising inadequacy of the landing strip, whose existence here would be unlikely to occur to anybody, was somewhat exceptional. From time to time I spoke into the microphone. Number two squadron, taxi off to the left, for example, or open out more, or go round again. About twenty Messerschmitts had landed safely. Only two were circling the field. In one case, the pilot was having trouble lowering his wheels. In the other, one of the new men had failed to land at his first attempt. I took off my helmet and was reaching into the cockpit to switch off the radio when I heard agitated shouts from the mechanics. Too far to the left! He's coming in too steep! As I straightened up, I saw a 109 touch down well to one side of the marker. Travelling much too fast, it ran some way with the tail up, and then, 
under violent application of the brakes, went rumbling up the slope in a lurching movement. At a time like this, everyone pauses to watch. The mechanics cease work. The pilots in their cockpits swivelled their heads to follow the progress of the machine as it tore past them, while the airmen by the door of the farmhouse stood with folded arms. The veterans, the experienced ones, knew that something was going to happen. Yet their faces were impassive as they waited the inevitable end. He's going to smash into the trees, I thought to myself. Perhaps he'll fetch up in the oak coppice, or maybe he'll risk wrenching the aircraft around so as to tear off his undercarriage. But before he reached the trees, the tail suddenly reared up and the airplane, after balancing momentarily on its propeller boss, went over in a somersault. All that could be seen now above the tall scrub were the wheels and the slender legs of the undercarriage pointing skywards. He had obviously hit a rock, but how was that possible? Yesterday I had made a thorough examination of the ground, taxing the stalk in all directions. Several vehicles were already racing to the scene of the accident as I jumped to the ground and called for transport. Well before I arrived, I was aware of a strong smell of gasoline. A party of airmen was clustering around the rear of the aircraft, preparing to lift the tail in a combined effort. I listened to their shouted exchanges. Watch out, there's a fuel leak! Have the extinguishers ready! All together! Lift! Backman suddenly appeared at my side. It's probably one of the new officers, he said. Christ, you hear that? The generator's still running. That means the ignition is still switched on. One spark somewhere in the maze of wiring could cause an explosion. Already the ground around the airplane was saturated with fuel. One of the mechanics, armed with a heavy tool, knelt down beneath the wing and knocked out the side window of the cockpit with furious blows. Groaning, the other airmen supported the tail. First a pair of arms appeared outside the cockpit, and then a head in a flying helmet. Finally the entire body, soaked with fuel, covered with abrasions and with his shirt in tatters, was rudely hauled out by the arms and dragged onto the ground. By now several of the onlookers were sighing with relief. During the operation a number of fire extinguishers had been aimed at the wreck. We were well aware of the dangers of the undertaking, and had kept at a respectful distance from the pool of gasoline. "'Pull him clear!' someone shouted. The pilot got to his knees, striking his head against the edge of the wing, and was urged forward on the arm of his rescuer. "'Now the extinguishers!' It almost seemed as though the jets of foam had ignited the fuel vapour, for with a dull woof, a red wall of fire as high as a house suddenly appeared immediately in front of us. Stumbling and falling, we raced for safety. We were out of the danger area when we saw a running figure, blazing like a torch. It was the pilot. After a few yards, he halted and suddenly collapsed. The firemen rushed to give assistance and emptied their extinguishers over the writhing man. By the time I arrived, the flames had been put out. "'It's one of the new officers, as I thought,' Backman said. "'He's been very badly burned.' Abruptly, the whole infernal makeshift nature of these advanced landing ground operations came home to me. In any case, the group now only possessed a single ambulance, and that was elsewhere. We had destroyed all our transport in Tunis, and when we had been re-equipped, one ambulance was all that Airfleet could make available. Everyone was shouting for a medical orderly, but so far none had arrived. Only the most essential transport had set out from Trapani, and the small patch of pasture land that constituted our airfield was difficult to find. We had left Captain Sperling, the M.O., behind to look after the wounded, for the uninterrupted raids had filled our small sick bay. The burned man had been placed on a stretcher and brought into the shade. He was a terrible sight. Several of the airmen were discussing ways of alleviating his pain. 
It's Berend from my squadron, Reinhold told me. He's only been with us for a week and hasn't yet done an operation. As I bent over the prostrate man, I was hit by the stench of burned flesh. The flames had made ghastly work of his head and the upper part of his body. His hair had melted into a nauseous mass, and his face was puffy with blisters. Shreds of clothing had burned their way onto his arms and chest. Between his groans, the boy was screaming, I can't bear it! Give me something to stop it hurting! Over and over again, he repeated his appeal while we stood around helplessly, for in the absence of either a doctor or a medical orderly, there was no one who knew how to give a morphine injection. Send for Straden, I ordered. He's done an injection before, that time with Hofmeyer. Take the first aid kit from one of the aircraft. There'll be a syringe and ampoules inside. Straden arrived, panting for breath. His duties were now in the improvised group operations room. He knew at once what was expected of him and set to work in professional fashion. Gently, lad, he said as he broke off the top of the ampoule with a steady hand and filled the syringe. Gently. It'll only last for a moment or two. It'll be over in no time. Then the injured man quietened down. He moaned softly to himself, murmuring words we could not make out, while an airman kept off the flies which had appeared in repulsive swarms. His eyelids had swollen together. His face was a featureless, liquefied mass. At last a stork we had summoned from Trapani by radio appeared above the field. It would take Baron back to our sickbay. There was also a field hospital in Trapani. Perhaps they would succeed in flying him to the mainland if a Junkers happened to be arriving during the night to bring in urgent spares and evacuate the wounded. I got into the Kubelwagen and drove down the slope to the farmhouse where we had set up our operations room. For a long time I was unable to shake off the impression of what had just happened. In between telephone conversations and aircraft state reports, the boy's face kept reappearing before me, and I thought I could detect the stench of burned flesh. The operations truck was standing outside the farmhouse gate. Tent canvas had been rigged up between the truck and the wall to make an awning. Beneath the canvas stood our deck chairs. The gate, heavily barred, was locked and securely bolted. By reaching to the top bar and pulling yourself up, you could look over into a quadrangular inner courtyard, surrounded by tiled lean-to shelters for the cattle. Rusty agricultural implements lay scattered about. This was rural Sicily, a peaceful sight. It was now harvest time, and you would have expected to find some activity in the yard, but most likely the people had fled in panic as soon as they got wind of what we planned to do here. For wherever we appeared in the land, death and destruction followed in our wake. Freiburg and his squadron commanders, together with Straden, Backman and Helbig, had gathered in the shade of the awning. It was hot and windless. "'What information is there about the Allied landing?' Freiburg asked. "'Not much,' I answered. "'Very little more than we can find out of ourselves. "'I managed to have a further word with the General this evening before the line was cut. "'He talked about air landings and parachute operations in the Augusta Cape Pizarro Jela area. "'You know the cool, detached way he has of viewing and sizing up the situation, "'the sort that would give anyone else a nervous breakdown.' But this evening, his voice sounded edgy and overloud when he said, We're putting up an unbelievable barrage. And then the line went dead. Nice situation, Freiburg commented. Backman, let me know, please, when all the aircraft are refuelled. How many have landed? Twenty-four, sir. Twenty-four. And how many of those would be serviceable? Number one wing had remained in Skiaka. Godart was to take off from there at first light to attack landing craft near Jela and would only move to our advanced airfield if it became impossible to remain at Skiaka. When did he write this? So I think he, he did write it after the war, but it was based on a diary he'd kept, and it, and it covers just 
about two weeks. I think it's from the yeah. 25th of June, 1943, so just before the Allied invasion. But, of course, from the Air Force's point of view, a very, very busy time for yeah. them. Yeah. Um, up to about the 14th, 15th of, of July, something like that. And it's just absolutely fantastic. I, I, I'm so glad I've read it. Um, yeah. And... What he does is he ruminates quite a lot. So he, you get bits of the Battle of Britain, you get bits of the Eastern Front, you get bits of his time in Tunisia. And what you absolutely get is this sense of everything just falling apart at the yeah. seams. And yet the top are still expecting them to perform like supermen and be the kind of world beaters they were but, in I mean, 1939, Yeah, That's interesting you say that he... he, he bit about the Britain Middle East of the front of the Mediterranean. Is that that's characteristic of the Luftwaffe? Is they were basically rushed to where there was a problem. Everywhere. Um But he goes off on one. So he might it might be the diary entry might be the twenty seventh of July nineteen forty three. Yeah. But he's he goes off on a on a on a bit about you know, Stalingrad or something. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is just, it's so brilliantly written, written and, and you really do smell the inside of the cockpit. You get the sense of what it is like being a pilot, all the kind of concerns, the kind of weary fatalism, the kind of then the kind of fight back. No, I don't want to die yet. Yeah. Um, the kind of sort of desperation to live, followed again by this kind of sort of really depressed kind of sort of, you know, it's all hopeless, we're all for yeah. the chop kind of. So the mood swings, the the, the stultifying heat of Sicily is also a kind of sort of constant sap on their energy. And the descriptions of flying, the descriptions of life, the descriptions of his other, of his fellows, of his comrades, several of whom don't kind of make it through to the end of the book, are just... They're really searing. They're, they're, it's just it's beautifully written and it and it's really good and, and it's one of those books where you sort of forget that they're the enemy, <laughs> you know, that they're the Germans. Yeah. That you you can't help but empathise with him. He obviously is a a, a decent human being, yeah. and um, I, I thought it was just fantastic. Well, thanks very much, James. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>